Recovery Elevator, Episode 74. You know, am I an alcoholic? Come on, I'm 20 years old. There's no way I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, 10 months, and one week. On today's podcast, we've got Ronnie. He got sober when he was 20 years old, and now he's got 25 years of sobriety. The topic for today's podcast is 50 great ways to stay sober this summer. But before we do that, let's switch it up a bit. Let's start with our interviewee, Ronnie. Ronnie, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Let's get right into it. Ronnie, how long have you been sober? I've been sober 25 years. September 3rd will be 26 years. Boom. Nice job. Yeah. And, before and, I, get... and I'm, I'm 45, so I got very uh, lucky and very blessed early. Yeah, no kidding. So how old were you when you got sober? Well the, well, the first time, I got sober a few times through my teenage life, but I realized there's no way I'm actually an alcoholic or a drug addict, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and then when I was 17, I, I got sober for two years and 10 months. And then at age 20, I decided there's no way I'm an alcoholic. I had a drink. And by later, literally later that night, I was smoking crack on the same day after being sober for almost three years. And then that was when I was 20 years old. And a few months later, I got sober again. So I guess this time, it's when I was 20. Yep. And I just got through the interview before this, and we got to the point that alcohol is the gateway drug. I firmly believe that. But before we get further into the interview, Ronnie, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, and you know stuff like that. Okay, well, first of all, I, I do think alcohol is the gateway drug because, you know, to be sober at 20, I, obviously there were other things I was interested in, pretty much anything I could get my hands on. But, so, um, yeah, I live in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm from New York and New Jersey, and uh, I've been out here 17 years. I work as an actor and a director uh, and a producer. I run two theater companies as well as, you know, make film and TV. I um, spent three years on General Hospital. I uh, left there a few years ago, and uh, what else? I'm 45, I'm married, and, you know, I've got a great family, and I'm very blessed to get to do what I want and do what I love. Most importantly, because I'm sober, I get to do all that stuff or forget it. So that's let's, my deal. Yeah, let's go back to age 20. I imagine that would kind of be the bottom when you were sober for a couple of years, had a, had a drink, and then ended up smoking crack. Is Was that your bottom? What What made you finally decide to quit drinking at age 20? Well, what's funny is it's like the word bottom always kind of is interesting to me because I hit my bottom so many times, you know, and it's like, I guess when we use the word bottom, we kind of equate it to the last drink, the last drug. But for me, I was out of control the second I started drinking. I never, ever did it socially. I never was interested in doing it socially. I loved it. I, in fact, I didn't like the taste of it. Let me be clear. But I loved how I felt and quickly I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so... I, I always drank and got high in the same way. In terms of my bottom, though, my uh, when I finally got sober, my bottom was on Labor Day, 1990. I drank a gallon of vodka and a bunch of Coke, and I was just out of my mind. And my sponsor, you know, the short version of the story is my sponsor came over and took, I was completely drunk. And my friend Joey Sands uh, came over and gave me a bottle of whiskey, and he was sober, so I thought that was really nice of him. And I drank a uh, quarter Yukon Jack. And next thing you know, I wake up at a LA picnic, a Labor Day sober picnic, trashed. And my sponsor <laughs> had brought me there. And after hours of me sitting in a chair crying and everyone telling me how much they loved me, he asked me if I was humble enough. And I said yes, and they took me to rehab. So that was my, that was my last drink. 
so I had many bottoms throughout my time, but I never drank socially or had any interest in that. It was full speed ahead and pretty much in everything I do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So you went to rehab, and was that a 30-day inpatient? What was that like? This one was a seven-day inpatient. It was called a, uh, it was in San Diego called the Care Unit, I believe. And they were amazing. It was just a seven-day program downtown Goodwill, and it was an intense seven days. Because I had been in 28-day program. I had been in two 60-day programs as a teenager when I was underage. So having been through all those, this was intense, and it was only seven days. And then I went back to New Jersey after that to uh, to kind of get clean and sober, and, and that's you know that's what happened. So. And did I hear that you were in General Hospital? Or, uh, you had regular appearances. That's a soap opera, correct? Yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, I did 150 episodes on General Hospital, and I left about two or three years ago now. I'm not sure. And uh, but I was the main villain for a few years, and uh, I had a blast. So. Yeah, I was on a soap. I'm not much of a soap guy, but I, I love the job. And, you know, as an actor, you take the work they offer you. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what is it like being sober in that industry? Is that tough? Well, you know, as far as, as, far as like a soap opera goes and a lot of these jobs, I was very grateful. The soap fans are amazing. And it's like anything, you know, you show up at a, at a place, many people are sober. And once you start speaking our language, there's suddenly a connection between you and other people. And so I didn't find it tough at all because I'm not one to run out and go to a bunch of parties or anything. And, you know, I do my job and I, I make some friends. And those who do drink and get high in the industry that are friends of mine, it's never an issue. Like, they respect me and I respect them. But for the most part, I tend to uh, gravitate towards people who are sober. It's the weirdest thing. So a lot of sober people who are in this business. Okay, okay. And talk yeah. to me about your drinking habits. I know this was 25-plus years ago, but yeah, I mean, did you? how much did you drink, and did you ever try to put rules into place like, look, I'm only drinking on Friday and Saturday night? Well, alcohol, funny enough, was the thing that led me to everything else, and it was also the thing I tried to do to bring me down from everything else. But what I, what I realized during my drinking, I thought alcohol was a problem, but I didn't really think it was my biggest problem. And it wasn't until I got sober that I had realized that alcohol was the thing. You know what I mean? It, it went with everything. I kind of always downplayed it, I guess, because you could buy it in a store, and it kind of went with everything. That didn't seem to be the biggest problem. But I constantly, with my drinking, negotiated with myself. You know, I'm only going to have beer. I'm not going to drink vodka tonight because uh, I love vodka. Or I'm not going to drink Everclear, which it got to that. You know, normal people don't hide bottles. Normal people don't wake up and figure out how they're going to get a drink. And so that became part of my daily life. And But I totally, you know, I didn't really realize alcohol was the main problem until I got sober and then realized it was the main problem. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I've actually heard that a couple yeah. of times on this podcast. Uh, people have, oh, have cool. gone, yeah, they've gone on retreats thinking that it's, uh, you know, like their anxiety is the problem, their depression is the problem. And it's like, oh, wait a second. Alcohol is the contributing factor. It is the gateway to all of these issues at hand. And talk to oh, me yeah. more about that, you know, of alcohol being the gateway drug. It's really what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, alcohol was very accessible. And uh, like I said, I didn't really love the way it tastes when I started, but before long, I acquired a taste for it. And I really loved the way it made me feel. And, and I did, you know, I know this is about alcohol, but I did a, a lot of drugs. And uh, I never heroin, but coke and all that. And so alcohol, to me, always, I always drank it trying to bring me down from everything. And it was, it was just a daily, you know, it was, it was a daily part of my life. I mean, literally every day I spent my time trying to figure out how to get more booze. So 
you know, I worked it out until I couldn't anymore, <laughs> as you know. So yeah, no, I, I hear you, you know. on that. And like, so do you remember back then, that twenty five plus years ago, what it was like when you when you first went into the seven day intensive rehab? I mean, what was that like? Your first seventy two hours, your first day, your first week of sobriety. Well, having had two years and ten months prior to that, I knew how the program worked. I went to a meeting every day and still drank after almost three years. Because when it came to the steps and all that, I had no idea that they even existed or were part of my life the first time through the program. So, in fact, I made a joke and said, were, were these steps always on the wall? And they were like, yeah. So, uh, I, I didn't really think they pertained to me, as it were. But, you know, my first three days, it was, it was hard because when you have almost three years of sobriety and you're 20, my ego was completely trashed, and I thought, how can I possibly, you know, face everyone and tell everyone what happened? And, and uh, But it was the best thing that happened to me because I lived for so long with so many reservations in my mind about what, you know, am I an alcoholic? Come on, I'm 20 years old. There's no way I'm an alcoholic. My brother, my brother and all my friends partied as hard as I did. Why, they just stopped. Why can't I just stop? But, you know, I didn't realize that I had the allergy. And even though I'm sober for those almost three years, it was a very different experience. I wasn't afraid of booze and drugs like, like I, am, I was when I finally got sober 25 years ago. And like I finally feel now. It wasn't until then that I, you know, now I have the same healthy fear of booze as I did then. And so, you know what I mean? So if something shifted big time between, you know, the three years of sobriety and the few months I took off getting loaded and then the 25 years. I hope that makes sense. No, it, it does. But talk to me more about like your healthy fear of alcohol, because right now I, I know that fear does not keep people sober. Fear can get people sober, but fear doesn't keep people sober. But I also, I have a healthy fear of alcohol. I'm terrified of this stuff. And I know what will happen if I start drinking again, a whole lot of bad shit's going to happen. Is that what you're referring to when you said a healthy fear to alcohol? Completely. When I look at it, I don't see, it's very rare that I glorify a drink. In 25 years, maybe it's happened a half dozen times. Most of the time, and I really mean most of the time, when I see booze, I get nervous. I mean, I just, that doesn't bother me like at a bar or out with friends. But if I ever take a second to glorify it, I quickly go to, oh my God, I'm going to destroy my life. Like, I, I think, I think it's through so quickly now that it's, it's, it's crazy I'm able to do that. Like, go from, oh, wow, that could be a good idea to, I better, ha I better not touch that or my whole life is going to be destroyed. Do you know what I mean? It happens quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, to, to me, it's, that, that thought is so fleeting and it's not even an option. It, it's, it's terrifying. But I want to talk to you about this play you got going on. When, you, when I got an email from you, you described a play that you have, have, have you written and directed and are you in it? It's called Bill W. and Dr. Bob. Just going to take a stab at it. Is about recovery? Yeah, so basically, I did not write it, but I, I, I directed it, and I also get to play Bill Wilson. And as you know, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob are the two men who came together and started AA back in 1935. And so the play takes you through that journey of how the two men, you know, they parallel lives, and then suddenly they come together, and, and, and how they come together, you know, a variety of circumstances brought them together in a room, and they were supposed to talk for 15 minutes, and they spent six hours together. And then the world changed. Everything's different. And so they started AA. So I get to play Bill Wilson, which is the biggest honor. Um, we're doing the play in Los Angeles. We've done it. We did it eight years ago and before that as well. But we haven't done it in eight years. And we're running through July 31st. 
It's at Theater 68 in, in North Hollywood, uh, North Hollywood, California. And you can get info by going to theater68.com. Well, people love the play, Bill W., because they feel like it's the greatest meeting they've ever been to because they're sitting in a meeting with Bill and Bob. So many people, when I tell you hundreds of people, and I mean that literally, have called me or written me letters or talked to me after the play saying, you know, they could never stay sober before, but now they think they can. Everything is so simple this way and blah, blah, blah. So it's really quite, it's quite a, an amazing experience watching the big book come to life in such a simple way. The response, I went from like having questions whether I should produce the play 15 years ago because of the traditions. I went from that because I was on the ropes about it until I spoke to my sponsor years ago to now I feel like it's completely my responsibility to produce the play and the service it provides is crazy. We have a rehab of 20 teenagers coming tomorrow night to see the show. No way. So, it, it, constantly, and that's constant. We're always bringing groups. It, it's constantly like that. It's, it's shocking. Not only is it an incredible experience if you're trying to get sober or you are sober, what I love is that 80% of our audience has never been to an actual play before. So that turns me on too, you know. So because they, you know, they, that wasn't their focus growing up or whatever. So. Yeah, so this is, you can see this in theaters till July 31st in North Hollywood. Is that what you said? It's only one theater. Yeah, it's our theater called, um, we're called Theater 68. And you could come basically go to theater68.com with an RE. And we're playing in North Hollywood on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday till July 31st. And it's a, it's a beautiful experience. It's an intimate theater. It's only uh, 50 seats. And so it's an incredible, intimate little experience that people come back 10, 15 times, literally, and keep bringing more people. It's this crazy phenomenon that's happening, and we're very, very grateful we get to do it. Ronnie, this interview is scheduled to come out in August, but I'm going to bump it to the head of the queue because I really want to get people to hear this interview. And maybe if they're in that region, they can go check out the play. And oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, and what you were saying about the traditions and worrying about stepping on toes, I also had those same trepidations. But once those emails started flowing in and you're like, wait a second, this is really touching some people, uh, That that's incredible. And I, I, I can guarantee right now if Bill were around, he'd be like, Ronnie, go ahead and play me. Uh, you're better looking than me, probably. So uh, do, do it justice. Uh, I, he'd give you the green light, right? Thank you. I hope so. You know, I always feel like, you know, it's an anonymous program, but you never want to be too anonymous where you can't help somebody. It's like a fine line, right? And so for me, I never want to be too anonymous where I can't help somebody. And Bill Wilson, I mean, I've spent time at Stepping Stones where he and uh, Lois lived for all those years. So... I just love I just love the fact that I get to play him. I mean, what a blessing! You know, I've done a, I've done a lot of plays and a lot of films and a lot of TV in my life, but I've never done anything so meaningful to others. You know, so to me, like I'll probably do better work in my life, but I'm not sure I'll do more meaningful work. And this means so much to me. I mean, after the show, it's the only play that, as soon as I take a bow, I come right out on stage and meet everyone. And there's hugging, kissing, there's crying, and there's laughing, and it's, it's just an incredible experience with all these strangers. It, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and maybe give us a, a short summary without uh, spoiling the ending and what the play's about. Is it, is it funny? Is it a drama? Is is it? Yeah, what is the play about? Well, I, I can't I can't possibly spoil the ending because we have uh, millions of sober people now because of this play. So yeah, you know how it ends. Kind of a joke, yeah. So, no, no, but it's funny. People always say that, like, they seem so shocked how it ends. I'm like, you know how it ends. You're sober, you're sitting in the room. But it is funny at times. We certainly, uh, it's not a big downer. 
it's funny, it's heartfelt, it's got a lot of passion, and it takes you through Bill's life and Bob's life in a series of events that happen that put them in the same room together in Akron, Ohio. At the end of the first act, Bill and Bob come together, and in the second act, they try to develop their program, which leads us all the way to meeting Billy D, the third alcoholic, and you meet Abby Thatcher, you meet everybody, Lois, Dr. Bob, and, and it's an incredible experience, and it's just so beautiful, you know? It takes place... Bill Wilson is telling the story in 1955, 20 years later. And Bob is telling the story in 1939, four years after the program started. And so they're both telling on opposite sides of the stage, so the play is bookend by that. They're both like speaking at a meeting, but then they both take you back in time. So it's really quite, it's quite effective. There's a lot of laughs, there's a lot of tears. It's just a beautiful experience. Is, mm-hmm. there any, is there any way to see this production on video, on YouTube? Have you recorded any of it? Um, we have in the past. We haven't for this production. I'm going to try um, because, you know, when, you're, when you videotape stuff like this, then it's a professional experience, so then you gotta, you got to work it out with the actors. You have to work it out with the playwrights. So there's, there's lots of factors involved, but I am going to try to put it on tape. Gotcha, and those damn egos get involved with the actors, I well, guess. Well, and, and their union, you know, so the union also gets involved. Yeah. That, that's like the direct analogy in the big book of, of uh, God, I used the pages like 63 to 68 or something where, uh, you know, it's talking about how you're trying to be the actor and like the producer of the play. And you're, but that's an analogy. You're like doing it though. And you're pulling it off sober. <laughs> that's incredible. Exactly. Well, thank you, pal. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful. I can't believe I get to do what I do. It's really beautiful. That is awesome. And, and also in the email that I got, you are in a movie right now. It's called Back in the Day starring Alec Baldwin. Did I read that right? Yeah, a movie, yeah, movie just came out. Uh, you can get it on video on demand or, I don't know, you can pretty much get it anywhere now. It's called Back in the Day. And I play a lot of mom guys in my career as well. And so this film, um, it's a boxing film if you like fight films. And it's a hardcore New York gritty film about a boxer. And I play his main rival who's this mob guy uh, coming up and we have a, it's really, I have a great partner. Alec Baldwin's in it, Michael Madsen, Shannon Doherty plays my girlfriend, Mike Tyson's in it, Danny Glover, a lot, a lot of great actors, and it was a really wonderful experience for me. So if you get a chance, and you like New York gritty boxing mob films, you might dig the film. So. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool, and I understand you were the villain in General Hospital, you're like the main villain, and back in the day, how do you get these parts? Do you have a look, or are you like just a complete dick in the audition? No, 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 you can't be a complete dick. I just, you know, I prepare the material, and I um, I go in, and, and you know, when I'm lucky enough, they give me the job. I mean, you know, it's a it's a funny kind of business, because when you're, when you're you know, if you want to be a doctor, you go to school for eight years, and you come out, you, you, you know, you're a doctor, and now you go get a job. It's not like that in show business. You know, from day one, you can call yourself an actor, which kind of sucks for those who are really pursuing it and taking it very seriously. But you never know where your opportunities come, so you have to be really prepared and show up everywhere you are and, uh, and be ready to do it. So I've been very lucky that uh, people have included me in their projects, and I just hope that continues, you know. And don't you have to wait tables in L.A. for like a decade or something to become like a real actor in L.A.? Well, it's not a requirement, but it seems to be most people's journeys. I'm lucky enough where it hasn't been mine. Gotcha. 150 episodes of General Hospital and back in the day, I think you're doing some big things out there. And this play sounds incredible. Um, And and and, uh, I was going to call you Alec. Uh, Which Baldwin? There's, There's two, Alec and Richard, right? There's Alec, there's Daniel, there's Billy. 
I've done movies with Alex and Daniel, and Daniel's had a very public uh, bout with alcohol. It's been very publicized, and I think he's sober now quite a while. Nice. Hey, Roddy, let's switch gears a little bit. Walk me through a day in your recovery after 25 years of sobriety. I'm curious. Well, you know, I, I I don't go to quite as many meetings as I should, a few a week, so... I don't miss my my Wednesday home group, but I get I get up in the morning, you know, essentially thank God for the for the opportunity to be sober, and try to stay out of my own way and do His will and be respectful and be a gentleman. And you know, it's funny when when I'm sober and I'm and I'm and I'm walking in God's grace, as it were. My life is just a lot simpler. When I try to do things my own way, forget it. So it's it's funny every time I'm I'm having a hard time, I look at and go, well, I haven't prayed today. I haven't reached out to anybody, I haven't been to a meeting, I haven't talked to a newcomer. I think the simplicity of that still remains the same after 25 years. And could you say that one more time for listeners and myself? That was a huge value bomb. If you hadn't done X, Y, Z, what were those things again? Your day just goes to shit. Normally, normally, if I don't, if I don't get up and, first of all, take a moment and give thanks that I'm in this position, if I don't reach out to a newcomer, if I'm not a gentleman and try to come from love and, and be graceful, and if I don't hit a meeting, it's funny. Things just seem uphill. It seems very hard. The, the formula has been the same since day one. And when I don't do it, because I'm not perfect, there are weeks and months when I forget how important some of those things are. Then guess what? Things are just harder, man, you know? It's really shocking how I repeatedly can learn that lesson, and yet sometimes I forget how to get back to it. You know what I mean? Oh, I I do a hundred percent. I've been sober for almost two short years, but yeah, ever so often, like you know, halfway through the day, I'm like, "What is going on?" And then the light bulb goes off. You're like, "Wow, you know, I woke up late. I didn't do any of my morning routines. I haven't been to a meeting in a couple of days. Like, it's obvious." But yeah, I have to relearn that lesson so many times. And talk to me about a couple lessons you've learned in sobriety. Maybe like after five, ten, fifteen years, you're like, "Wow, I've still got more to go." Well, you know, that's that's pretty easy because my issues always usually come back to ego and self. You know, I don't run around like an egomaniac. That's not what I mean. I just mean that I am so used to, I mean, I run two theater companies, one in L.A. and one in New York. I'm the artistic director of both, which means I pick all the material. I've been doing it for 16 years. I have 120 actors in my care, and I take that responsibility very, very seriously. So... I spend my days helping people and sharing information with people and making lots of decisions. So sometimes it's hard for me to get back to to lose ego and self because I'm so used to being the one going, yeah, well, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do this. So I'm constantly learning the lesson that for the grace of God, you know, I, I just need to continue to show up and and not think that I'm completely in charge. I mean, look, I am one of these guys, and I don't know how people feel about this. I'm one of these guys that believes God can move mountains, but you better bring a shovel. You know, the guy who's waiting around for God to show up and knock on his door, that scares me. I don't, I'm a very in-the-solution kind of guy. And God, for me, has always been the same. I grew up a Catholic, so how I see the God of my understanding, you know, I've heard lots of cute little things like good order, redirection, and all that stuff, right? Uh-huh. God could stand for those things. But for me, it's like, when I'm, when I'm doing God's will and God's grace, I feel like I'm just literally being, I'm, I'm my best self, meaning, I'm loving, I'm open, I'm open-minded, I'm caring, I'm thoughtful, I'm selfless. When I'm doing all those things, I'm living in God's grace. And so that lesson 
is constantly being retaught to me always. And so I'd say that's probably the biggest lesson and the most consistent lesson is that, you know, I can't rely on just God alone. I have to show up and do the work. And but we have a partnership and if I'm being, and when I'm at my best, everyone around me seems to be at their best. You know what I mean? Roddy, I love so, the word you just used right there. We have a partnership. That's a great way to look at it. And Roddy, you've been sober for 25 years. Before that, you were sober for uh, for two years, almost three, you said. What are your thoughts on relapse? You know, my thoughts on relapse change all the time, and here's why. Look, this is, and, and I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want anyone to get a bright idea that they're not supposed to be sober. But do I really believe that every single person who walks through the doors of AA is an alcoholic? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's possible. The odds of that are impossible. I know lots of people who I know 20 years ago I went to meetings with, and they got into a couple of bad scrapes, or the judge sent them, whatever happened, and they showed up in the rooms of AA, and 20 years later, they, they drink socially once every six months. Huh. They were there for a couple of years and left. So I, I, I don't think that's me. So I guess I could answer the question why I believe somebody is an alcoholic, and, you know, it's a weird disease because you have to self-diagnose that, you know what I mean? Sure. So, and I, I hope I don't offend anybody by saying what I just said, but there's no way everybody who ever walks through the door is an alcoholic. I just don't believe that. But I do believe that if you're an alcoholic like me, who knows that I am, and I've proven that over and over myself, I think relapse is not necessary, you know? It's, it's like... I feel like people who relapse and don't get back and keep on the same path, we, we constantly need to re- tell ourselves that we can do this and we're not alcoholics, but normal people don't have those arguments with themselves. You know, non-alcoholics don't go, I'm going to watch my drinking or I'm going to, you know, I mean, you may have that conversation once or twice, but how many go on a school round? It's, it's, it's 2.30 in LA right now. If I take a drink right now, I'll be smoking crack by 7 p.m., I mean, I don't even pretend to, like, I don't even want to have a social drink. There's nothing nothing laid back or social about me. So that's not interesting to me. So I, I guess relapse is not mandatory. I wish it wouldn't happen. It doesn't have to happen. But sometimes, for whatever reason, it needs to happen for certain people, and then hopefully, you know, they get their, their butt back to the program quickly if they're lucky enough. Some people don't, you know. Okay. Yeah, it's a very interesting disease. Yeah, so Ronnie... You, uh, you're, you're talking to your younger self, like Ronnie, age 17, 18, right now. What would you say to your younger Ronnie? 17, 18, younger Ronnie. Am I sober or am I not sober? No, right now. You got 25 years of sobriety right now. You're like, hey, Ronnie, man, I, have a seat and, and listen up. I would say the sooner you could get past being so dependent on the drink or the drug, the quicker you could get on with the rest of your life and start doing the shit you're really interested in doing. I would say that there are so many lessons along the way that were annoying to me that I heard from other people. And one day you'll wake up and go, oh my God, they were right. But I do believe, you know, my old sponsor used to tell me this, and this would probably be the tagline of what I would say to young Ronnie, is no matter what you go through, no matter what you do, just drink a lot of water and walk slow. Drink a lot of water and walk slow? That's it. I mean, that's my best advice because you're going to go through whatever you're going to go through. That's you know what I mean? hilarious. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And, and um, you 25 years of sobriety. It sounds like you're a very successful actor, uh, play producer. What's still on your bucket list, Ronnie? Well, you know, I, I am one of those guys that has like literally been able to realize so many dreams that I had. And I'm still realizing them. 
I guess on my bucket list is still to do great work. You know, I don't want to get specific about it because, you know, of course I want to be on, I want to be on criminal minds for the next 10 years. But, but rather than doing that, I would say just continually getting to do what I love and put in a position where I could somehow help others. And, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I have a laundry list of stuff I'd like to do. Go, you know, go shoot a movie in Italy for a summer. I'd love to do all that stuff. But really, more importantly, I think is just whatever comes up next and do it gracefully and try to be a gentleman while I'm doing it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's, and that bucket really list, all those items that you just mentioned, they're all attainable in sobriety is what I have learned. And Ronnie, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? 30, uh, all of them or just one at a time? So I'll go one at a time. <laughs> all right, here we go. Let's, uh, let's do it. Yeah. All right. Question number one, Ronnie, what was your worst memory from drinking? Was probably stealing my mother's pocketbook. Gotcha. Yes. Yep, that's uh, that's a good one. Number two, Ronnie, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating you really couldn't control your drinking? I did, and that was in the courtroom when I was 16. I had a spiritual awakening in front of the judge because the things that came out of my mouth asking for help were never what I intended when I walked in the courtroom that day. And Ronnie, yeah. what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? It's just to keep showing up and trying to be uh, graceful and put my hand out to those who need me and uh, trying my best on a daily basis to stay with the formula that works and keep it extremely simple because I can get very complicated quickly. So I'm going to just try to do more of the same and keep learning. Keep it super simple. I love it. And Ronnie, within 25 years of sobriety, you know a couple resources. What is your favorite resource in recovery? Well, funny enough, I mean, if you're talking about a book, obviously I think the big book is, but but I would say my biggest resource that I use the most is meetings because I feel like when I go in there, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a link to all of us that's, you know, we're linked together by this invisible thread and it's an act of faith between us each time I walk through the door. And so my biggest resource, I would have to say the meetings. Gotcha. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Drink a water, water and walk slow. I was hoping to say that again. I love it. And before we depart, Ronnie, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? I would say that if you're thinking about it and it's on your mind, there's a really good chance you should be doing it and because normal people don't generally consider that. So, and of course, there are exceptions. But my advice would be is... Uh, Give it 90 days, literally just try 90 days, and the first few weeks might be hard, but 90 meetings in 90 days, you got into to 180 meetings in 90 days, and um, my first sponsor told me you could refund your misery at the door when that's over, so if you want to go back to being miserable, you can do that, but if you really genuinely give it 90 days and throw yourself into it, you might have a, such a big uh, change that you, you may not go back, so um, I think the first few months are essential, and I think... Uh, do something very different than you had been doing. You know, if nothing changes, then nothing changes. And, and you know, the, my advice is, like, give it a really strong 90 days and see what happens. Ronnie, I love it. And before we go, give listeners your own personalized You Might Be an Alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you crawl around on the floor and try to put something in a pipe that might resemble something on your carpet. That's a problem. You might be an alcoholic... <laughs> <laughs> Although that took me years to realize that was a problem. Uh, you, oh, if you got more, keep them coming. You might be an alcoholic if 
if you steal from someone you love just to get a drink or a drug. Yeah. Uh, you might be an alcoholic if you wake up and think I need a drink. I don't know. I'll stop there. No, I got a million of them. No, I got one from your interview. You might be an alcoholic if after two years of sobriety you take a drink and later that night you end up smoking crack. Yeah, that might be a problem. That's a problem. Just slightly. Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, back in the day, starring one of the Baldwins. That's awesome. General Hospital. And tell me one more time, what, where can we find more information about this play? If you go to uh, Theater 68, so that's uh, T-H-E-A-T-R-E 68.com, theater68.com, and we're playing in North Hollywood, in North Hollywood, California, and it's called Bill W. and Dr. Bob. It is a beautiful experience, and again, we're only running through July 31st, so hopefully uh, you'll, you'll get to hear this before we close. Absolutely. I'm going to bump it up in the queue. Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us. You're awesome. Thank you, Matt. Before we get into our topic today, which is 50 great ways to stay sober this summer, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face -face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, here are 50 great ways to stay sober this summer. Now, I can't guarantee you if you do all 50 of these, you will stay sober. But I can guarantee you that you won't do all 50 of these. But pick some out and do some of them. And I encourage you to get outside of your comfort zone and try some of them that you don't want to do. Sure, there are some fun ones that'll be like, yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to do that and stay sober. But there are some of them that when you hear, you'll wince and you're not going to want to do. But those are the ones that I think we both know that you should do. So let's get this list started off. Number one, wear sunscreen. Lots of sunscreen. Somebody should actually make a song about that. Like the entire song should just be straight up wear sunscreen. Number two on the list, La Croix soda water. Drink a lot of that shit. Number three on the list, enjoy time in a hot tub. Number four, go to the beach. Make a beach trip. Now you might be saying, I live in Montana or I live in Kansas. The nearest beach is hundreds of miles away. But let me tell you, any body of water has a beach, including the swamp behind your neighbor's house. Number five, movie day. You can start off by watching the anonymous people. The sixth way to stay sober this summer is scroll through your contact list and call somebody you did wrong in the past. You're like, okay, this is easy. I'm going to call them and tell them what they did wrong. No, no. Call somebody you did wrong in the past. Tell them not what they did wrong, but what you did wrong. Number seven, binge watch old TV episodes. Preferably not Mad Men. All they do is drink for 60 minutes. Number eight, yoga and meditation. Think about it. Give it a try. Number nine, create a new sober drink, and I encourage creativity. One time, all I had was watermelon and milk. Sounds disgusting, I know. It is delicious. Give it a try. Number 10, do that whole fitness thing. Maybe biking, swimming, wiffle ball, hiking, golf, etc. Number 11, join a book club that actually reads the book. 
Number 12, adopt a pet. Maybe a dog, a cat, possibly a gecko. Number 13, think of the most pressing issue in your life right now and then write down what your part of the problem is. Number 14, go to a museum, but turn the flash off on your phone. No flash photography. I learned that the hard way in the Prado Museum in Madrid. Number 15, visit Pinterest. Find new recipes or DIY projects. I encourage DIYPete.com. He's got great woodworking projects. Number 16, Google mindfulness and find out what that really means. Number 17, buy a new car, one that you've never drank in. Number 18, learn how to shoot a bow and arrow. It's pretty fun. Number 19, find something like Jolly Ranchers to help subside cravings when they come. Number 20, build a pergola or a sauna at your house. Preferably with the help of a friend, pergolas tend to tip when you build them by themselves. Learn that firsthand as well. Number 21, gauge your emotional sobriety in the future by purposely removing all the staples out of your stapler. Number 22, volunteer, be of service. Repeat that again. Number 22, volunteer, be of service. Number 23, acceptance is the answer, period. Number 24, take a look in the mirror and observe what you see. No, what you really see. Get capital R-E, real with yourself. Number 25, take on a new hobby. This could be painting or coloring. Remember how fun coloring books were? They're still a lot of fun. Number 26, how about that travel thing? But travel wise and travel smart. Don't put yourself in situations like staying in party hostels when you're trying to stay sober, a.k.a. Paul 2013-14. Number 27, fundraise for the recovery elevator trip to Peru in 2017. Two words, Machu Picchu. Two more words, Inca Trail. Number 28, go to a sober outing wearing your sober as shit shirt so nobody offers you a drink. Number 29, listen to the Recovery Elevator podcast episode number 52. It's one of my favorites. Number 30, play a good natured joke on someone. Not so much like put a rattlesnake in someone's trunk. More like do something nice for somebody and then tell them you have no idea who did it. Number 31, pay for the person's order behind you regardless of what line you're in. Number 32, attend a 12-step meeting on the other side of town, preferably a meeting that's in another language. Number 33, enjoy a non-alcoholic drink such as a virgin pina colada. Those are so damn good. Number 34, announce to the world that you're an alcoholic or that you're trying to get sober and create some accountability. Number 35, read page 471 in the big book daily. Number 36, once again, tell yourself acceptance is the answer. If your addiction wasn't listening, go ahead and tell yourself again. Number 37, put your forehead on a baseball bat, spin around 15 times and give the person closest to you a hug. Number 38, Google CBT. That's Charlie Beta Typhoid. I know it's not typhoid, but Oregon Trail was my favorite game as a kid, and I always died of typhoid. Damn it. Number 39, jump rope. I've chatted with a lot of alcoholics. I've not heard one of them yet say I relapsed while jump roping. Number 40, we all know someone who should probably think about giving the bottle a rest. Invite them to Dairy Queen for their lunch specials from 11.30 p.m. MST time to 2 p.m. And then, let me tell you firsthand, my office is next to a Dairy Queen. They've got some great lunch specials. But on your way to Dairy Queen, just go ahead and drive right past it and take them to an AA meeting. They'll probably thank you later. Number 41, have a water balloon fight. Freezing balloons the night before is optional. 42, watch the movie Dodgeball with Ben Stiller and then probably watch it again. 43, third eye blind, all of it. Number 44, check out your local events calendar and go to an event you kind of don't want to go to. Number 45, laser tag. Laser tag, laser tag. Number 46, 
take a sober road trip with another sober buddy of at least 200 miles each way. And if you happen to stop through beautiful Bozeman, Montana, stop and say hi to me, Kelly, and Ty. Number 47, get flowers or a gift card for someone you absolutely cannot stand to be around. Okay, Beth in accounting, I hope you like marigolds because these are for you. Number 49, wear lots of sunscreen or long sleeve shirts. They both work pretty well. Number 50, go get a natural high. This could be skydiving, jump off the high dive at the local pool, go-karts, grab an inner tube, float down a river. Sober, that is. Oh yeah, I got another one for you. Number 51, I know I said 50, but I'm trying to under-promise and over-deliver in life here, so I'm going to give it a go. Number 51, go see the play Bill W. that Ronnie talked about in the interview. I think that pretty much wraps up the list. I don't think I left anything out. Uh, Let me just cruise through my notes. Oh, don't drink. Shit, how did I almost forget that one? Yeah, just don't drink. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of you guys were waiting for that on the list, and it should have been an obvious one. So here it is. Number 52, don't drink. It's not that simple. It's not as easy as simply not drinking, but that's a good start. Don't take that first drink. Because for me, one drink was too much, and a thousand drinks wasn't enough. So before we depart, I want to end on that note. One drink was too much, and a thousand drinks for me wasn't enough. That's quite the pickle. That's quite the conundrum. That's quite the paradox. That's quite the lollyflogger. I just made that word up. I don't know what it means, but I'm going to use it anyways. Let's classify that as a noun. If one drink is too much, and a thousand drinks is not enough, what do you do there? What do you do? I thought I solved that riddle at times, but my addiction... My thinking eventually proved to me that I didn't even come close to solving that riddle. And for me, the easiest way to avoid that exhausting way of life was to give up. I gave up. I gave up trying. And the weird part is, that's when it worked. As soon as I gave up trying to control my drinking, to control my surroundings, that's when the rubber hit the road. That's when I got traction, put on my favorite Third Eye Bly album, their second, their sophomore release, and started making progress. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down, we gotta take the stairs back up. We can do this. 